if he wants to pinch hit on the fly. Good morning, church. It is good to be with you. Um, it's good that we are invited by God to gather. Um, please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse <clears throat> 26 when we, when we read. Um, that's where we left off last week. Last week, uh, last week we saw the author of Hebrews um, exhort his audience uh, to faithful living. And, and the basis for his exhortation was, was the, the background here, remember, is the complete confidence that we have in Christ's work. Uh, all, all of uh, what Christ has done, his sufficient sacrifice, his, uh, the priesthood of Jesus, because of those things, we draw near to God and we hold fast our hope and we stir one another up to love and good works. That's how we left off last week. And the author ends his exhortation from last week in verse 25 with these words. He says, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's what we're going to pick up today. We're going to look more precisely at what day is drawing near and why that makes us want to press on all the more. So uh, we're going to read verses 26 to 39, and then we're going to pray for God's help as we, as we hear the preaching of his word. So Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 10, verse 26. This is God's very word to us. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the formal days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your possession, of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would meet us right now. Um, 
as we consider the words that you have given for us to hear today. Help us hear your heart, your burden. Give us the sight to, um, to see the eternal realities that we can be blind to, Lord. Um, I pray help us know how to um, take the truth of your word and, and move forward with it as we, as we go back into our week. So work in our hearts right now. Spirit, give us eyes to see things that we cannot see without you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Saving for retirement. It's a wise discipline. Um, I, caught, <clears throat> I caught the most clear vision for this when I was at the pastor's college. Um, there was a, a class taught by uh, Tommy Hill. We had him come in and help advise our church with some admin logistics stuff. So he, he taught a church on church admin. I taught a church. <laughs> taught a class on church admin. And, and during that class, uh, he put the fear of the Lord in me regarding the importance of saving uh, for a day when I'll no longer be hireable. Um, at one point, someday, my mind or my body is going to weaken to the point where I will no longer be useful as an employee, whether that's of a church or of an employer. Unless, of course, you know, I die in like a plane crash before that. I don't know. There, but there's, there's going to come a day. I, when that day comes, I'm going to want to have saved for retirement. And if I've saved well, I'm going I'm to reap the rewards of that discipline. I'm going to be able to meet my financial needs and not become a financial burden on others. Um, I'll be able to free, be freed up to, to serve in new ways um, you know, that, that I've never been able to. Um, serve my church, serve my family, serve my neighbors. Uh, maybe I'll have great grandkids. I don't know. That'd be fun, right? <laughs> so there's, there comes a day, and if I haven't saved well for that day, then, th- then there's, there's some tricky stuff, right? I get kind of in trouble. I either have to still work to pay my bills, and that's getting harder, um, or, or maybe I'm depending upon others to sustain me financially. Um, so it's, it's, it gets tricky. So we know that saving for retirement, it's, 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 it's a wise discipline, um, but it can be really easy to put off. Um, we, we know it's good, but it can be tough to prioritize. Um, our, I could just think that the day-to-day, our, our monthly expenses and bills, especially living in Denver, where everything is just incredibly expensive, it can really be hard to think about, yeah, like, okay, 30, 30 years or 20 years or 10 years or what have you out in the future. Uh, the day-to-day can capture our attention, and we can forget about the day that's coming when we know we won't be able to work like, like we can today. Um, and if you're in retirement, then just apply this analogy as, you know, as an analogy. So we know that day is coming. It's easy to act, though, like it's not coming. We can effectively forget about the future that we know is coming. Well, the author of Hebrews also reminds us today of a specific day that's coming, a day we know is coming but can easily act as if it's not coming. And that day is the day of judgment where God will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And so we who, are, we, we who are taught well, we know that this day is coming. Okay, We know it's coming, but we, we can effectively live our day-to-day lives like it's not. Um, we can be like the person who, who fails to, to prioritize and save for that day of retirement. And so when we have our sights only on today, we can forget about the day that's going to last for eternity. I mean, eternity is coming. And there are eternal consequences for our actions today. So it is to our advantage to act today in light of the future. And so the Hebrew author's intent for his audience and God's heart for us is that we'd remember the judgment that is drawing near and live this day 
in light of that day. So we're going to aim to do that by looking at three admonishments that the author gives his audience, and we'll see what each of these admonishments, um, what sort of response they call for. So the three admonishments are a warning to the unrepentant, an encouragement to the weary, and a reminder to both. So let's look at the first admonishment. A warning to the unrepentant. We get this warning from verses 26 and 27. Let's read that again. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Um, Note note a few things about the the people that the Hebrew author is is addressing here. Okay, Who, who is he talking to? Well, first, they've received the knowledge of the truth. So they're taught well. That, that is, they know the truth of the gospel. They're aware that Christ has died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin uh, for all those who repent and come to God and to bring sinners back to God. These are, I mean, if you, you could say they're churched people. These are people who know the truth. Uh, the equivalent today might be the kiddo who grew up in Sunday school, you know, singing Jesus Loves Me and reciting John 3.16 from a young age, right? These people know the truth. But despite receiving this knowledge, it says they go on sinning deliberately. Now, note, note, note two words or two phrases. Go on and deliberately. Okay, this is instructive. Go on sinning indicates a continued pattern of sin. And, and deliberately indicates an intentionality, an unrepentance. The author here isn't speaking of just anyone who falls into sin or is struggling with a specific habit of sin. Uh, if that's what he was talking about, that would be all of us. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we, say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're, we're kidding ourselves. We all have sin, so there's no doubt about that. So the author of Hebrews isn't addressing just anyone with sin. He's addressing those who are living a lifestyle okay, of, of intentional and unrepentant sin. They're doing it on purpose, and they don't have any intent to change. They're like the hardened criminal who, after being in, uh, in prison for 10 years, the day they get out, they go right back to the very thing for which they were incarcerated. Their heart hasn't changed. Their mind hasn't changed. Now, lest you and I think we can never be such people, the author of Hebrews instructs us by including himself and his audience as potential candidates for people who go on sinning deliberately. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately. He doesn't exclude himself from the possibility of becoming a person who lives a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. He doesn't exclude himself, and neither should we. You, people can look legit. They can look like the real deal, and yet their life takes a course that shows they never really truly believed in and had a, a, a true living faith in the, the Son of God. I know a man, and some of you know him too, who was once a worship, a worship leader in this church. Okay, You'd think, they can't fall. He's now a professing atheist. Okay, 
if we don't think we could head down that same exact path, if we think, I, I would never do that, then guys, we are dangerously proud. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. So let's humble ourselves before God, okay? Let's heed this warning that he brings. This could become any of us. We have to check our hearts. We have to be willing to realize we don't want to go down this. So let's hear this warning. So, yeah, so we've, we've identified this, this, this people group that Hebrew author is addressing. They've been taught God's word. They know it. They know it well. They know it by heart. And yet their lives betray their true, uh, their true hope. They live a life of unrepentant sin. So what admonishment does the author of Hebrews give such people? Well, he gives them a warning. And that warning is to fear punishment and repent. Verse 26 says that to such people, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. That is, the unrepentant shouldn't presume that God is going to forgive their sins just because they have a head knowledge of Christ's work, and yet they live a life that proves that they don't believe it. Rather, they should expect judgment. Um, as a teenager, I would often mouth off at my mom. Uh, during the day, I was homeschooled, so I was around her a lot, and I was a turd. Um, and <laughs> I, I would think I'm in the right. You know, I'm, 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 I'm holding my ground. I'm my own man, whatever, all that terrible teenage pride stuff. Sorry if you're a teenager, but it's part of what we work through. And, and I would know, though, uh, I would know that when dad got home, uh, mom would tell him what went down, and there would be a reckoning. Uh, as, <laughs> as dinner time drew closer, and I knew my dad would be home soon, I began to have a fearful expectation of judgment. Okay? That's what it looks like. You know you've done wrong, and even if you think you're in the right, there is a, an authority coming that has something to say about your life, and there are consequences. That's the fitting response, that fearful expectation of judgment. It's a fitting response for those who live in unrepentant sin. They shouldn't think, oh, I'm good. Nothing's going to happen. No, there's a day. Un unlike the judgment I dreaded as a teenager, my dad wasn't, it's not like he'd beat me or anything. I mean, he was gentle and kind and gracious and loving. Um, but there's still that fearful expectation. Unlike that judgment, okay, the judgment awaiting the unrepentant, it is severe. Verse 27 describes it this way. It says, this judgment is a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's vivid imagery. I, I think of, of the grueling scene um, from the war movie, We Were Soldiers. Um, it's difficult to watch. There's a man who has been burned with napalm that was landed by, um, by planes. You know, they're, they're throwing it down there in the battle. This guy's writhing on the ground in agony. He can't stand it. His comrade tries to comfort him. He tries to drag him to safety, but as he reaches out and grabs this man's legs and pulls, he doesn't pull the man because the, man's legs, uh, the, the skin on the man's legs is so burnt, he just pulls the skin right off his legs. This kind of consuming, furious fire, that's what awaits the enemies of God. It is not good. Hell, the place of punishment for the unrepentant, is described by Jesus himself in Mark 9 as an unquenchable 
fire. And this fire is fueled by the wrath of God himself. Hebrews 9.30 quotes God's own words. It says, this is God speaking, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The all-powerful God will personally see to it that his enemies are eternally punished in the hell of consuming fire. Now that may sound harsh. That may sound disproportionate to the offense. Surely sin isn't that bad, is it? I mean, how God, God can't possibly hate sin that much, can he? Well, he can. The author of Hebrews, he anticipates this objection in our hearts that goes, really? That bad? That much judgment? He anticipates this objection, and he gives us a comparison of, the less, of lesser and greater offenses to make his point. I think of an illustration from uh, Beck and I just uh, watched, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, um, which is a movie about the, uh, basically the hunt for um, Osama bin Laden uh, uh, and, um, uh, after 9-11. And, uh, and so the, one of the opening scenes is this um, <laughs> call interrogation. It's a torture chamber. It's this American, uh, I think, CIA agent torturing this dude, uh, and, and, and it's, it's grueling. It's, it's, it's dehumanizing. It's uh, somewhat repulsive, and you go, oh, my gosh, uh, this seems totally wrong. And not to speak to the, the justice or injustice of torture, because we're humans created in the image of God, but something that happens later in the movie gives perspective about that scene. They're torturing this man because they're trying to get information about him, from him, about this bombing that's going to happen. The man doesn't yield. He endures the torture. The bombing happens. Like 17 people die. And after they die, you just watch the agents feel like we failed. There's, there's this sense of the, the, uh, for as, as horrible as this torture is of this man, you can see why some would argue that it's, it's worth saving 17 people's lives. Like, you think, oh my gosh, why are they treating him so bad? He's a part of killing people. He's killing people mercilessly. So you don't have to agree that the judgment fits the crime. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it brings perspective on why it's so grueling, why the torture is, is there, and why would some would, would vie for it. God is more just than that. It is more clear. The judgment is more clear. So this lesser offense, when you think, okay, if my, if my son did something wrong, he might deserve a little flick on the cheek. That's appropriate. Small offense, small, small judgment. But this is a great offense with a great judgment. So here's the, here's the um, comparison that the author of Hebrews gives us. So on the one hand, the lesser offense is someone who has rejected the law of Moses. Okay? This is the lesser offense. According to the law in Deuteronomy, someone who rejects God's law and instead worships idols and, uh, you know, serving, serving the sun or the moon, not, not the true God, they incur upon themselves the death penalty. Uh, they were to be executed by stones being hurled at them one at a time until they suffered enough blunt injury that they collapsed over and their bodies died. That judgment was sealed by two or three people who witnessed the idolatry and testified in a fair court. 
And these witnesses were the first to throw stones at the accused, at the guilty party. So the judgment for rejecting God's law was merciless death. The author of Hebrews says this person dies without mercy. That's the lesser offense. This is starting to give us a perspective of just how much God hates sin. The author then compares, on the other hand, the greater offense, okay? More than this, the greater offense of someone who has spurned the very person, work, and spirit of Jesus. He describes this person in verse 29 as someone who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. This is a description of someone who knows the gospel. They know who Jesus is, and yet they continue in deliberate sin. They know that God sent his son to die for them, and yet they reject him. It's as if they trample on his dead body. They're aware of the costly price that was paid for sin, Jesus' own blood, the most precious blood, and yet they regard it as nothing. They've witnessed the influence of the spirit of grace at work within God's people, and yet they insult him by closing their ear to him. This offense is far greater. It's far more personal. It's far more insulting than the offense of the one who rejects the law of Moses. And so the judgment is greater. The author of Hebrews asks, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by such a person? The answer, much worse. The judgment for this person doesn't stop at physical death, like the one in the Old Testament. No, this judgment is spiritual, eternal death. This judgment isn't carried out by just two or three witnesses. This judgment is carried out by God himself. Verse 30 says, the Lord will judge his people. Guys, this is, this is terrifying. This judgment is severe and unrelenting and merciless. It is invented and enacted by God himself because he hates sin and will take vengeance on those who spurn his son. It is indeed a fearful, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you have heard the gospel, if you have grown up in the church, if you know all the right answers, you know who Jesus is, you know what he's done, and yet you haven't turned from your sin, guys, this is your fate. It doesn't matter if you're part of this church. It doesn't matter if you look like you're one of God's people or not. If you do not submit to Christ as Lord, God will not hold you guiltless. He hates sin and loves his son too much to ignore the fact that you spurn him by not submitting to him as your savior. So fear this judgment. If this is you, fear this judgment. Repent. Call upon the God who provided in his son the way of escape, the, the sacrifice for sins. That's what he came to die for. Turn away from life that that's, that's a lifestyle of sin. Turn toward God in faith and the one who has died for your sins and look to him to forgive you all of your wrongs. I hope you will. I hope you take this to heart. This is, this is not fake. This is real. This day is coming. Act now.
So the author of Hebrews gives an incredibly severe warning to the unrepentant. And, and even warns us that there's a possibility, right, if our lives show, betray, that our trust is not in Christ, that, that we may be this too. Let's check our own hearts. Let's not exclude ourselves from thinking, that could never be me. No, let's not think that. He warns them of the terrifying judgment that awaits them and then calls these people to repent and to turn from the life of sin. But after such strong words, calculated to instill fear in those who would otherwise wander from the faith, the author of Hebrews now brings a balm. He brings a balm to those he knows to be faithful. And that leads us to his second admonishment, which is an encouragement to the weary. The author writes this in verse 32. He says, but recall, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Again, note the people he's addressing here. These people, as with the unrepentant, have a knowledge of the truth. They were enlightened. That is, enlightened about the truth of the gospel. So again, his audience has a head knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay, but what separates them from the unrepentant who also have that head knowledge is what they do with that knowledge. It says they endured a hard struggle with, with sufferings. So rather than, than buckling under trials, and giving in to sin, and rejecting God's Son when things got hard, they instead, these saints instead, patiently endured the struggle that faced them. So they're shown to be true. They're shown to have a faith in God that gives them endurance to the difficulties of life. And these saints, though they are enduring, they're faithful, they're also weary. Okay, it's not easy for them and they're not doing it faultlessly. We learn from verse 35 that they are tempted to throw away their confidence. That's the reason the author of Hebrews says, do not throw away your confidence. Why does he have to say that? Because they're tempted to do so. It's hard. I want to throw away. I want to give up. We learn from verse 36 that they have need of more endurance. They need more of this. And perhaps you feel the same way. Perhaps today, your conscience is pricked this morning, but maybe it's not because you are living unfaithfully, but just because you feel like, Lord, I'm trying hard and I'm, I'm just, I'm beat. Um, it's hard. I want to give up. I think of Psalm 73. I was praying this last week where the, the, the psalmist cries, he's having a hard time. He's faithful. But he's having a hard time because he watches the, the unrepentant and the godless just thrive and flourish. It says they're, they're their bellies are fat, and their eyes, I mean, they, they're always at ease. They increase in riches. I mean, these guys have got it good, and here I am laboring away for no reason. I'm crying out, God, help me. I don't see it. I don't see the truth. So this heart cry is real. I've lost my place. I totally lost my place. <laughs> Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you are tempted to doubt. Maybe you are weary. Maybe you have need of endurance. I was there last week. Well, here's God's kindness. He has a word for you today. He has an encouragement for me and for you, and he wants to strengthen us. This is how the author 
strengthens his readers. He does so by two means. First, he recalls his audience's past. And then he anticipates their future. First, he recalls their past. He reminds his audience of a time in their life where they endured some pretty rough stuff. He describes it this way. He says, sometimes they were uh, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes partners with those so treated. So they're apparently the object of some sort of public mockery, uh, a scorn, um, and they stood, uh, you know, both they were the recipients of this, and they were those who stood by those who were recipients of this scorn, of this public mockery. Um, when I think of what this looks like, I think of C.J. Mahaney. Um, for those who don't know, C.J. is the founder of, um, of our family of churches, our little denomination. Um, and about a decade ago, he, he and others were the, were the, public, uh, were, were the, uh, sorry, the object of a great deal of online slander and public shaming. Um, some people he thought were his friends betrayed him, and his reputation was wrongfully and, and permanently harmed. He was publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. But he wasn't the only one who suffered. Um, just this past week, when we were at the West Regional Retreat, we had Bill Kittrell come in, and I had never heard his name before, and I'm guessing you haven't either. Um, Bill Kittrell came in to talk about friendship. It turns out Bill is a very good friend of CJ's. He's a fellow pastor. And he talked about how when CJ was in the spotlight of social condemnation, um, he was planning to invite him to his church to come preach as a friend, to say, we're with you, we're for you. But when his congregation learned that that was his plan, some of his members threatened, if you have him come here, we're going to leave the church. So Bill, being a faithful friend, had CJ come still and preach. And those members left Bill's church. He lost them. He suffered the disdain and, and, and um, departure of these church members because he stood by someone who was wrongfully accused, because he was a friend in time of need. He was a partner with someone publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. The church that the author of Hebrews is writing to had endured similar hardships, and they had responded valiantly. He says they had, in, in this struggle, they're, they're, they're enduring reproach. They're suffering alongside those who are enduring reproach. He says they had compassion on those in prison, and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They didn't just endure these trials. Man, they thrived in them. I mean, they're enduring trials, and they're reaching out to others. They're enduring trials, and they're going to those in prison, and they're giving them food, and they're giving them clothing, things that people in prison at that point uh, weren't getting. If no one came to your aid, you would die in prison. They wouldn't give you food. So they're going to these people. They're remaining joyful even when their property is being stolen. I mean, these people are thriving in the midst of trial. And the author of Hebrews recalls these, act of love, these acts of love and endurance that was once demonstrated by his audience in order to bolster their faith. He's saying, you've suffered well before, and by God's grace, you can do it again. I'm reminded of the, the second to last semester of my college uh, career. It was, it, was a crazy, it was a crazy semester. Uh, there was Rancher 3M, uh, my sister got married, um, had some serious senior, senioritis sit, uh, setting in, that's hard to say, 
Um, I, uh, I was teaching at Aletheia, had four courses, and on top of this, I, I was trying to do project management for the senior design project, and I really had no clue what I was doing. I was just, it was just shooting from the hip. No, no clue. Um, when I look back at that semester, I am, I am dumbfounded that somehow I made it through. Like, it, I wasn't like amazing man. I was just like, I made it out alive. I have no clue. And somehow people didn't, I mean, there was a point, <laughs> I forgot this until now. There was a point in our conference planning where um, I was afraid we or the, or the school was going to get sued uh, because we had raised all, I, I didn't even know we got ourselves into a weird position. We had raised all these funds for this conference we are going to plan, so I thought, great, we raised the funds, we can spend the funds. Well, it turns out the school system with all their rules, you can raise funds if you want, but then to spend funds, <laughs> even if you raise them, you got to go through all this paperwork. Well, we didn't go through the paperwork. We signed some like 10 plus thousand dollar contract with a hotel to have them host us and feed us. And then we learned that from the, the dean or whatever of the, like the financial stuff, I don't know what her title was, she's like, yeah, um, you can't sign that. I can't even sign that. And I'm like, oh, shoot, we're in trouble. Like, I was terrified. I had no clue what I was doing. So it was just a miracle, a miracle we got through that somehow. <laughs> when I look back on that semester, I'm, I, I realized the only explanation is, is, is for me getting through it was God's amazing and sustaining faithfulness to me in a season of life that he had placed me in. Remembering that semester gives me confidence in the God that got me through that semester. I think also of, of Pastor Darren um, and his example of trusting God uh, with, with past trials. This is his second bout of cancer. You all probably know that. And just to hear his faith of like, well, did it once. The Lord met me. Of course he's going to meet me again. I mean, it's just remarkable. And, and him remembering the faithfulness of God in the past gives him strength to say, he's going to do it again. I don't know what it's going to look like. He's going to be with me. I can remember that. So thank you for your example. When we recall God's past faithfulness, it gives us confidence to endure in the present. So, Recount God's faithfulness in the past. <laughs> Remember what he's done for you. Um, recall how he's proven his sufficient grace and sustained you through enormous trials. If you have a journal, consider going back and reading some of it. Go back and remember. I, I, I have terrible memory. I forget everything in life unless I write it down. Go back and remember what he did to, to, to meet you. Or, or maybe consider journaling a, a few key victories in your life. The Lord got me through this, and I want to write it down so I can remember it later. Listen to or read stories of, of how other people have seen God's faithfulness. Ask them about it. Pull them aside. How did, how did you get through that season? How, how did you raise five kids and not kill any of them? It's going to bolster your faith because you're going to see the God who sustains us through these things. So the author of Hebrews first recalls his readers past to bolster their faith. And then secondly, he anticipates their future. The anticipation of the future was actually the key to his audience's past success. Look again at verse 34. He writes in the middle of it, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So, 
How on earth can someone joyfully accept their property being stolen? I can hardly imagine my phone or my car being stolen and I'm being like, I joyfully accept the plundering of my property. <laughs> no, how do you do that? I mean, especially, I don't know, I, I feel especially subject to this. I think, yeah, I've got, my, I've got my savings and they'll stay there and I've got my home and I'm happy about it. And you know, you, you, you've got these things we save and plan. How can you remain joyful how can you joyfully accept when all that goes through and when it gets stolen from you, unjustly even? Here's how. Here's how the believers of this letter did it. They had an eternal perspective that gave them unshakable joy. They did it by remembering that they had a property. It's the same word as possession. They had a property in heaven that was far more valuable and far more lasting than anything that could, they could ever lose on earth. Imagine, you know, you will be the heir of a $1 billion inheritance in just a couple years. That'd be nice, right? A billion dollars, okay? If you lose a few bucks today, you misplace your wallet, you're not going to have a meltdown, okay? You're not going to mind that much. In fact, what losing those few bucks may even do, as you feel like, oh, man, five bucks, I could have bought in a Subway, you know, eat fresh, right? As you have that thought, you go, oh, wait, hold on. I have a billion-dollar inheritance coming. What am I crying about? Man, you know what? That makes me more joyful. Losing a little now reminds me of how much I can't lose in the future. Believe it, that's the case for you and for me. We have an inheritance that is infinitely more abundantly precious than a billion dollars. It's far more precious. It's far more lasting. Eventually, at some point, a billion dollars would run out. Maybe inflation would just catch up to it, right? Okay? The wealth we have in heaven, through faith in Christ, never runs out. It will always be abundant, and it's precious. It is far more valuable than gold or dollars or 401k investments or a home or equity or whatever. It is the joyful fellowship with the living God who has sent his son to die for you that he might call you his own child. Yes. Glory, be. Glory be. Amen. Believer, that's the case for you and me. We should we always have abundant blessings coming. It will always be abundant. And so we should be always joyful. The only reason we fail to is because we just don't remember it. We just don't believe that it's coming. As long as our sights are kept on the glorious day to come, our joy will be full. So how do we endure in the present? We, we do two things. We recount God's faithfulness in the past to give us endurance through life's trials, and we anticipate the reward, the reward that is kept in heaven for us. So when you're weary of doing your homework or of working hard at your job or of raising kids or of growing old, when you're weary of enduring slander or, or of even reaching out to those in need, again, you're giving, you're giving, and you feel like you have nothing left to give. When you're doubtful of God's provision for, for finances or relationships 
or the strength to get through the, the trial that you're facing today, then remember God's past faithfulness to you. And remember your eternal happy ending. It can't be stolen from you. The author of Hebrews has warned the unrepentant and encouraged, emboldened, bolstered the faith of the weary. And now he gives a reminder to both. This is how he closes this passage. The reminder comes in verses 37 and 38. It says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is a quote from Habakkuk, okay? Where, where God answers Habakkuk's complaints to God that injustice just seems to prevail uh, uncontested and indefinitely throughout the earth. It's like, God, will you do nothing? Do you not care that we are being, that we are being uh, unjustly treated, that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? So the Lord responds with these words. The Lord responds to Habakkuk with this guarantee that the end will surely come soon enough where retribution is brought on all of God's enemies and salvation is brought to God's people. The coming one, Jesus, the conqueror of the world, will come and he will not delay. Judgment is sure. Judgment is near. That means that for those who shrink back and fail to confidently place their faith in Christ, that means destruction is imminent. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3 say this. Listen, for you yourselves are fully aware that the, Lord, that the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Guys, for the unrepentant, sudden eternal destruction is right around the corner. It is not far off. The coming one will not delay. So repent now. Don't wait. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, now is the day of salvation. Don't wait. The end is near. Simultaneously, while that heightens the warning of, for the unrepentant. It also heightens the joy of those who have faith in Christ. It means that your eternal reward is near. It's just around the corner. It, isn't it far easier to endure something when you know it's about to end, when the end is in sight? Academic finals are bearable because you know that in a week or two, you're going to be on break, <laughs> and you can sleep in as long as you need to if you don't have a job or whatever. <laughs> I didn't, so that's, that's what I looked forward to. The last 100 feet of a 14er, when you could see the very top, it's bearable. You just hiked you know, a couple thousand feet in elevation, a couple miles in, in distance, and yet, even though you're that tired, it's doable. You're right there. You know that soon enough, you're going to have reached your goal. You're going to see a breathtaking view. And you're like, ah, that was worth it. You're almost there. It's right. You can see the tip. Weary believer, the end is almost here for you and for me. We've almost made it. We are almost home. It may not feel like it, but when you get eternity in view, a little tiny short life segment is nothing. It is a blip. 
It is a drop in the bucket of eternal happily ever after. Soon enough, we're going to meet Jesus in person. We're going to enjoy his tender and sweet embrace. We're going to hear him say to each of us who believe in him, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Guys, that day is coming. It's almost here. Endure a little, a little longer. Eternity and its joys are just around the corner. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would instill this truth in our hearts. Keep our sights on the day to come. Give us endurance for today, knowing that this is short. This, as you say, Lord, light momentary affliction. It may feel heavy. It may feel very long and lasting, but in light of eternity, it's short. It's light because there is a weight There is a heavy weight of glory waiting for us that we will enjoy forever and ever and ever. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us for as many as have placed their faith in you today to get through the trials that you have placed us in, to watch your faithfulness. And Lord, for those who who do not have a genuine faith, Lord, I pray that they would repent and turn from the judgment that's to come and to turn instead to a gracious Savior who says, I will take on that punishment and I will give you eternal, lasting joy. Lord, I pray that you would do that today. I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.